Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. Uh, let me uh, go ahead and open us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you again for this evening, for this time that we have to uh, study uh, this book. We ask that your spirit would be with us uh, and that this study would be profitable for us, that uh, you would uh, help us in our Christian walk to grow and to, to draw closer to Christ, and that we would be aware of and, um, and uh, not fall prey to the temptations of Satan. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, we're going to be looking at letters 21 and 22 in uh, Lewis's The Screw Tape Letters. Uh, in letter 21, uh, you, you uh, have the focus on the topic of uh, over ownership as it relates to um, Satan tempting us to become irritable people or peevishness, as he uh, is the language that he use, uh, uses in the letter. And then in letter 22, you've got a, a number of different uh, things going on. It's kind of um, some miscellaneous things happening there, but uh, we'll see a little bit about uh, kind of the relationship between uh, discipline and pleasure. Um, and then also uh, you have some references there to music and silence versus noise uh, as well. So we'll touch on the uh, some of those topics, but there's some uh, some things happening in letter 22 that are kind of uh, pertain more to just kind of the story of screw tape. And there's some uh, dynamics coming out of the relationship between wormwood and screw tape that are uh, interesting in letter uh, 22 as well. Um, so that's some of the things we'll be uh, talking about this evening. Uh, so in letter 21, uh, we start off with uh, screw tape talking about. Um, uh, part of the desire of temptation uh, for this patient is to to seek to make him a uh, a peevish person, someone who's irritable, cranky, petty about things. Uh, and one of the things he brings out at the uh, at the beginning is that men are not angered by mere misfortune, but misfortune conceived as injury. Uh, this is the idea that anger uh, you're you're not necessarily just angry because something bad happened. You're you often get angry because you have at least the perception that someone has injured you or wronged you in a particular way. Um, so, you know, example of this would be, you know, you're in a, a crowded place and someone bumps into you and, you know, you're like, yeah, whatever. It's just, that's just what happens. There's a bunch of people around and, you know, sometimes you bump into each other when there's a lot of people. Um, you don't get upset about that. Uh, that's just a, you know, a random misfortune that happened. But if you perceive or think, whether it's true or not, but think that someone bumped into you on purpose, then you've been injured in a certain sense. You feel like someone's wronged you, and your response is very different. You start to get irritable. You may be upset uh, about this. And the, the reason this is, uh, uh, Lewis starts to talk about this idea of claims on life. Uh, this is the idea that uh, we have claims to things in this world um, that belong to us by right. So in the example we just used, it's that you know, we have the belief that we have the right to uh, not be bumped into by other people. And so if someone violates that right, we feel as if they've wronged us, and so we get angry about it. Uh, or the example that uh, uh, the screw tape uses in this letter is the example of time. Uh, he goes on to talk about, you know, uh, get your person to, to think about how uh, he has 24 hours in his day. This is something that belongs to him. And someone who starts to, uh, you know, uh, 
something that interrupts that and it is something that's unexpected that starts to eat away at his time, he will get upset about. He uses the example, the unexpected visitor when he's looking forward to a quiet evening. Were the friend's talkative wife, what, uh, he looked forward to a, a tete-a-tete with a friend, a, a private conversation with his, uh, with his friend that's now being interrupted by the friend's wife. And then these things would then throw him out of gear. They anger him because he regards his time as his own and then thus feels that it is being stolen. So he feels that he has this right, he has this ownership of his time, the, you know, the 24 hours that he has in a day. And so if someone starts to use that up, that he doesn't want them to use it up, he feels as if he's being injured, as if he's being wronged. And so um, he gets upset about it, starts to feel like it's being stolen or, or taken away. Uh, and this, of course, this can, um, this can apply to a whole host of different things besides just time. Anything where we start to think that something belongs to us by right, we can become irritable when things don't end up going the way that we want, or we lose out on things the way that we want them to be. Of course, the reality is, and this comes out in the letter, is that uh, we don't own things like we think we do. We talk a lot about things belonging to me, mine, my, you know, stuff like that, and he talks about the different ways these things are used, but the reality is these things don't belong to us by birthright. Um. There's the, uh, he talks about it here. Yeah, the, the joke is, is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. And in reality, the example of time, time is a gift that God gives us. We don't own our time. We can't store it and put it in a box or anything like that. It, it comes and goes through us, and we have no control over that. And that's something that God gives us. We don't control when we're born. We don't control when we die. We don't control the things that happen in our life that God just brings in our way. The question in the end for us is, well, what do we do with what we're given? But it doesn't actually belong to us in that, uh, that ultimate sense. Now, I do want to make a distinction here. When, um, when Lewis is talking about ownership, he's not talking about ownership in the way that we often think about it as in terms of like, you know, possessing certain things or, or things like that. There's a, I mean, he even talks about, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can use the word mine. Uh, and there is a sense that, you know, we can have uh, a certain ownership or possession when, when we think about it in a, in a certain sense. Uh, for example, um, private property is something that we see in the Bible. You have the command, do not steal. That means that, yes, you have a certain relationship of, responsibility and stewardship over something that someone else can't just take it away from you. At least they're not supposed to. Um, but even within that sense of private property, there's still that aspect of we don't have ultimate ownership. I mean, God says in the Psalms, you know, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He may have entrusted it to individuals who then bear that responsibility of caring for those cattle, but who ultimately owns those cattle? God doesn't do it. And that, I mean, that goes with everything. In an ultimate sense, then, we don't own anything. We are stewards. We have been given responsibilities and gifts from God that we are to use in certain ways, but we don't own them in the sense of, like, uh, of that, in that ultimate sense. 
And thus, um, when we start to think about this way, and we start to think about all the things in our lives as being gifts, this starts to uh, this starts to orient us to have this this sense of the things we have are gifts to us from God. And this leads us to then having less peevishness because there's less perception of injury. So going back to that that example of time, if we recognize that our, our time is a gift that God gives us, maybe that person that's talking a lot that we're like, you know, we don't want to give them the time of day. We feel like they're they're stealing all our time. Maybe we need to view it as an opportunity that God, for some reason, has brought this person into this moment to have this conversation with us. Maybe we need to hold on to our time a little less loosely and not miss out that maybe there's a reason God has orchestrated this conversation to happen. Maybe this person needs us to be a listening ear and to steward this time well in this moment and recognize that there might be more going on. So does that make uh, does that make sense? What um, what Lewis is talking about here in Screw Tape this this whole issue of uh, control and ownership. It's a it's a recognition here of God as the ultimate owner, God is the one who's in control, and us seeking to be proper stewards of what he he gives us, and as such not being uh, not being so completely wrapped up in ourselves and our selfishness to uh, to think that we're in charge and control of everything, and then when things don't go our way, we start to get offended. Does, it, does this all make sense? Any, any questions or, or comments? That's really the, the sum of what we have here in Litter 21. Yes, Barbara. I think this chapter really illustrates mm. I am jealous of my Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to put it. For those on Zoom, Barbara was, uh, was sharing that um, this chapter really spoke to her because this is something that she struggled with. Of you know, she she plans out certain things and then it doesn't happen the way she wanted, and that frustrates her. And uh, you know, there's a, a recognition here that um, you know we can make plans. That's not a bad thing at all. But ultimately, our plans have to submit to God's plans in the end. Um, now, we don't want to use that as an excuse for laziness. It's like, oh, it's God's will that, you know, I didn't do anything because, well, I just didn't do anything, you know. Uh, we don't want to excuse ourselves that way, but, but recognize that, um, you know, our time belongs to God. And, yes, things may not always go the way that we want, but that's okay because God's in control. And his ways are better than our ways. So, yeah, that's a very helpful. Thank you. Any other uh, questions or comments? I 
Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sue's uh, bringing out the, the last, uh, the last sentence of the letter. Uh, you have this contrast going on, you know, God says mine over everything because he created everything. It actually belongs to him while Satan tries to say mine. But the only way he can say that is by conquest, by trying to, to conquer things. And, uh, Thanks be to God, he's not able to, to conquer God's children because God protects them. But he wants to. He tries to. He's a roaring lion seeking those he may devour. But he's not able to say mine over anything unless even God allows him to in the end. You think about him and Job. He wasn't allowed to touch Job unless God gave him, uh, gave him permission, which is very, very interesting to think about. Anything else before we move on to letter 22? Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, you know, Randy's bringing out the the fact that you know a lot of what Lewis is talking here is about providence in this chapter, and uh, uh, that is a, a good question. Lewis is is not a, a not a Calvinist. And so, you know, he doesn't necessarily think about, you know, God's sovereignty and providence in quite the same way that we do. Um, however, there's often a lot of times when he does sound like that. And, of course, the reason is because it's biblical. And uh, even if people aren't Calvinists, they default into that mode many times because that's what the Bible says. Um, there, there's a number of different places where he writes like a Calvinist, even if he didn't mean to. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a lot of um, providence going on here. God's in control. God's in charge of ever, everything. And we like to think, you know, he has this, um, this phrase in here. You know, we like to say, my God, in a sense, not really very different from my boots. Meaning, the God in whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have done a cornering. Uh, that's the idea of, you know, the God that I control. You know, just like I control my boots, I use them for whatever I want to, I need to use them for. Um, they're mine, they belong to me. We think of God in the same way. You know, he's our God, we, we use them the way that we want to use them or when we need them or things like that. Um, it's just something we have control over. That's, that's not how it works at all. Um, if anything, God's the one who has all the control over us. We're more like his boots than anything else. Um, Though he's kind enough to, to value us a little bit more than boots. Um, but that's a, an easy temptation for us. And the reality is, nope, we don't control God. He controls us in the end. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Yep, a lot of Proverbs about that. Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep. Um, there's a lot in the Proverbs about, you know, uh, Terry's bringing out the example, the lot is cast into the lap, but God's the one that controls the outcome, and God's in control of, uh, of all things in the end. So. All right. Let's look at um, letter 22, in the screw tape letters, letter 22. As I mentioned at the beginning, there's kind of a, a lot of, there's a lot happening in this chapter. Not all of it's necessarily theological, 
Um, but you definitely see some of the, uh, the relationships going on between wormwood and screw tape uh, in this chapter. Um, the impetus for this letter is the fact that uh, the patient is uh, now in a relationship with a, with a young lady, and uh, Screwtape is very upset by the fact that this young lady is the exact opposite of everything he's been writing about in the previous letters. In the previous letters, he's been talking about, you know, the, um, what you want to try to tempt the Christian into uh, following after. And this young lady is a very godly, humble, you know, all the things that uh, a demon would hate. Um, and so, you know, we should be happy about that. Um, but you also see here some of the, just some of the unique and weird um, aspects of the relationship between Wormwood and Screwtape. And just to, to comment on that briefly, we see it kind of unfolding a little bit in different letters. Um, but while you have, you know, the beginning, uh, the letters are addressed, you know, my dear Wormwood, and they end with, you know, your affectionate uncle. We got to remember a couple letters ago where uh, Screwtape talks about, you know, they, you know, the demons don't believe in love. They believe everything is competition. And competition in using and controlling and really getting something from someone else to your own benefit. It's all about looking out for number one. Um, that's what you have going on here between Wormwood and Screwtape. Screwtape's concerned about himself in the end. And in many ways, he doesn't view Wormwood as something with, uh, you know, a love for him own, his own sake. But there's very much a competition going on. You have here, you know, Wormwood had uh, apparently informed about some of the things that Screwtape had said in his previous letters, and Screwtape has, has dealt with that. Um, when he talks at the end about, um, you know, the desire to unite him in an indissoluble embrace, there's this... Um, this weird idea of kind of uh, screw tape kind of to kind of spoil some stuff later on of like, you know, the punishment that he will inflict on Wormwood later on and kind of feeding off him later on. Um, and I think kind of what Lewis is trying to communicate with some of this stuff in his letters is kind of that the hellishness of hell um, as well as just the, the pure selfishness and, um, the, the, the demons desire to just completely use each other for their own purposes without any concern. So even in this letter, he talks about, you know, some of the things they hate about this, this girl's family. It's just how loving they are. You know, there's just this stench from the family, they, they, the, the relationship that all of them have. You know, even the dog has this stench. And what's the stench really is the stench of love, that, uh, of God's love that permeates that family. And he talks about how, um, we are certain that each member of the family must in some way be making capital out of the others, meaning they must be using each other in some way. They're getting some benefit from this relationship. They can't actually love each other. Why? Because the devils don't believe love is possible. But they haven't been able to figure out what it is. He, he's talked previously about the, you know, the, the enemy secret, God's secret of you know, what is his real motivation for why he treats uh, human beings the way he does. Um, you know, there, he, he speaks of this pretense of disinterested love. Really, reality is, it's not a pretense at all. That's what happens um, through the gospel and the working of the Spirit, is we are able to actually truly unselfishly love each other. But the relationship between Screwtape and Wormwood is not that case at all. Theirs is kind of an embodiment of that rivalry 
and really, you know, they, they write to each other to work together in a certain sense, but they are very willing to stab each other in the back to advance and to gain power over the others. Uh, Wormwood tries to do it. He kind of fails. And, uh, you know, the booklet Screwtape sends him is uh, the new house of correction for incompetent tempters. It's kind of a threat that he sent him about this is what's going to happen uh, to you. So that's, uh, that's just some of the, uh, um, the extra little side stuff that's happening uh, in this letter. I think that also explains as well why you kind of have that, uh, you know, screw tape getting so, uh, so upset that he turns into a centipede. I think that's trying to communicate the, the hellishness of hell again. Uh, he's, he's pulling off of uh, some themes from uh, other authors such as John Milton uh, and George Bernard Shaw uh, and some of the descriptions they've used in, in their literature um, to kind of, you know, give a little bit of insight into uh, the character of the demon, you know, and reading a letter, you can start to think of a demon as just a really bad person. When you get that image of a centipede stuck in your mind, there's, there's a little bit of that grossness to it. You know, it's it's a little nasty. Um, uh, so anyway, so enough of that stuff. Um, we can ask questions about that in a couple minutes if you like. Um, a couple of things I wanted to bring out here is he talks about God being a, a hedonist at heart. Now, I want to explain a little bit what he means by that, because he also references discipline here. He references, you know, fast vigils, stakes and crosses, and he says those are only a facade. You know, the reality is God is all about pleasure. Um, and he quotes, uh, he quotes the Psalms, where it talks about, um, I makes no secret of it, at his right hand are pleasures for forevermore. That's a, a quote from Psalm 16. Uh, and and what that what's going on here is um, we need to remember what God created before the fall is good. He said it. He saw what he had made, and it was good. It was good. It was very good. And all those things, just by by nature of their creation, are things that uh, are good for us to enjoy. And when we enjoy them properly. We enjoy God as the maker of them. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. When you go out and you enjoy the beach and a, a sunrise or a sunset, and you just behold that beautiful vista before you, and you're enjoying creation in a, in a proper way, you're giving glory to God at the same time. And there's a, a pleasure and an enjoyment in that. Now, why is it then that you have, you know, things such as the fasts and the vigils and crosses and things like that? They're, they're not a facade, but those exist because of the fall. Because in the fall, what happens is you have humanity seeking their own self-pleasure apart from God. Remember that language, Eve saw the fruit, she desired it, she saw that it was pleasurable to the eyes, it was desirable for food, and so she take it. Uh, it was desirable to make one wise, and so she take it, and so she ate. And so the problem was is that humanity sought their own pleasure and advancement in their own will and action, as opposed to finding it in God and following after Him. And so this has led to a you know the the corruption of our nature and this you know this whole host of twisted desires, and uh, and those disciplines of fasting and other things. What those are part of is uh, killing our flesh so that we can get our desires properly oriented so we can truly enjoy God again. 
That's what those disciplines are about. A lot of people, they look at Christianity, and they're like, well, it's just a bunch of rules about do's and don'ts. I mean, yes, there are rules about do's and don'ts, but the point of those rules is to get us closer back in line to what we were supposed to be so we can properly enjoy God. And that enjoyment and pleasure with God, the pleasures at his right hand for uh, forevermore, are way more real and valuable than whatever pleasures sin offers us in this world. And so that's just a, a little bit of what's going on here with this, uh, um, the, the disciplines, the fasting, things like that, and yet the, uh, and the pleasures, on the other hand, and what it means to, uh, uh, to enjoy God. So I just wanted to explain that a little bit. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to, to bring out a little bit from this chapter uh, is towards the end, uh, Screwtape goes on a, a little bit of a rant about music and silence and how he detests both of them. Um, now, this is something that you, we see on a lot of different literature, but I think it's also important because we see it in the Bible, too, of music and silence as both being very interesting things that are used as descriptions of what we see in heaven. Uh, you have uh, in heaven praises of God being sung, new songs being sung to praise him. We also have scenes in the book of Revelation where there's just dead silence that happens. You have places in the Psalms that talk about you know, uh, silence before the Lord. And so both these things, you, you almost think of them as opposites, music and silence, are both connected with the worship of God and heaven in a certain way which is very fascinating uh, to think about. And I think part of the reasons why that is the case um, is that music uh, really connects with the emotions, uh, with our emotions as human beings and helps us to be able to express them. And music for the the worship and praise of God, it helps us to express ourselves in uh, in a certain way. But silence is also important in life because silence... Uh, enables us to it enables us to hear God, and I and I don't mean that in the sense of God like with a, a new revelation or you know anything charismatic like that. I mean it in the sense of uh, of the Spirit working in our hearts, of the Scriptures working in our hearts, of us being able to actually reflect and be convicted of sin and things like that. And we see that coming out here in, the, in this letter because uh, what Screwtape does is he exalts noise in juxtaposition with music and, uh, and silence. Music can lift up the heart to God in beauty. And silence can expose oneself when they're actually able to live with their thoughts and think and contemplate things. But what does noise do? He puts it this way. Noise alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. It's often when we're silent when we're act- is when we're actually able to have clarity and think about things that we need to think about and start to have qualms, like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be doing that which I'm doing. You know, it gets rid of a lot of the distractions. You may remember in a lot of these letters, what is it that Screwtape's telling Wormwood to do all the time? He's telling him, Distract him, confuse him, muddy him, get his brain all confused. 
Because if you can do that, you keep him from thinking about and asking the questions he needs to be thinking and asking the questions about. Um, and one of the ways you do that is through noise. Man, just think about our culture today. How noisy is our culture today? I'm not. I'm not just talking about like you know in the in the city where you know. Um, I, I remember I've uh, uh, an aunt that uh, used to live in New York City. She and her husband came and visited us. You know, we were out in the uh, in the rural suburbs, and uh, you know we had a ten acre farm across the street, another farm. I mean, you, no one drove on on our road unless you either lived there or were lost. Uh, that was basically it. And so we had them over visiting from New York City, and we were sitting outside, and they just there's a moment where they just were like, stop. You can hear the birds. Like, they just, that, that was unusual to them because, you know, they're from New York City. So, I mean, so you have that aspect of this, of that, just that constant noise. But even just in our, our normal lives, there's just noise everywhere. There's all kinds of distractions everywhere. And there is a, a value to being able to, uh, to have a moments of silence, just to, to have clarity, just to have thought. Um, you know, why is it that sometimes we call our devotions quiet times? It's, it's part of this idea, the ability to keep distractions at bay and to be able to have clarity and thought between yourself and God. That's, a, that's an important thing. And so that's why, uh, that's why Screwtape doesn't like that. He's like, no, more noise, more noise, more confusion, things like that. All right, so that's... Uh, I think that's pretty much everything here from uh, letter 22. Any questions, comments, observations from either of the either of these letters? Anything we've talked about? I think uh, our society doesn't like quiet because it, um, it just needs things to distract themselves. Keep yourself distracted. Um, Very true. I don't know, you know what they're keeping themselves distracted from exactly. But yeah. Things they probably don't want to think about. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And Randy's bringing out that um, our, society, our society wants to be distracted, and that's part of why our society is so noisy. Is you know, We may not necessarily know all the things, but there's things they don't want to think about. There's things they don't want to have to face. Um, and that's why they pursue, pursue lots of noise. And... Um, and there's probably more we can say about that, but I'll, I'll leave it there for now. So. Any other questions, comments, observations? All right. Well, we're a little bit early, but that's all right. Um, I'm going to open it up then if there's any prayer requests.